You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Crowdsourcing CSR Solutions In today's world, the way social entrepreneurs increasingly achieve collaboration is through technology. Indeed, one of McKinsey's top 10 tech-supported business innovation trends is collaboration at scale. This is where the Web 2.0 concept of crowdsourcing comes into its own. The term was coined by Jeff Howe in a June 2006 Wired magazine article called The Rise of Crowdsourcing, in which he argued that technology has shrunk the gap between professionals and amateurs. Howe saw crowdsourcing as an alternative to outsourcing. Crowdsourcing is closely linked to the wisdom of crowds' ideas, popularized by a 2004 book by James Surowiecki in the same title book. Surowiecki's opening anecdote captures the book's central tenet of why the many are smarter than the few. He recounts how Victorian English polymath and half-cousin of Charles Darwin, Francis Galton, discovered that it was the crowd at a country fair that accurately guessed the weight of an ox when their individual guesses were averaged, whereas individual guesses on their own were invariably inaccurate. Today there are numerous examples, the most famous of which is Wikipedia, the free online collaborative encyclopedia launched in 2001, which today has more than 16 million entries. Founder Jimmy Wales is quick to point out that Wikipedia is a social innovation, not a technical innovation. All the tools needed to create Wikipedia existed in 1995, when Ward Cunningham invented the wiki editing concept. Wikipedia was, in fact, Wales's second attempt. Before Wikipedia, he explains, we had a previous project called Newpedia. The goal was the same, a free encyclopedia for everyone, but the method was different, very top-down, very academic. The problem was, it was just too slow. And what has all this to do with CSR? Well, when it comes to CSR challenges, sometimes speed, not to mention wisdom, is also of the essence. Like when Hurricane Katrina hit and some social entrepreneurs responded by developing PeopleFinder, a kind of crowdsourcing software that was developed to locate missing victims. Or what happened when the Haiti earthquake struck on the 12th of January 2010. Let's look at this one in a bit more detail. In the weeks after the tragedy, text messages to the dedicated Haiti emergency shortcode 4636 increased about 10% each day, with about one text a second coming through. With the scale of requests flooding in, how were the emergency response units to make sense of all the desperate messages, let alone respond? Faced with this conundrum, Mission 4636 was born, a joint project by Frontline SMS, Ushahidi, Samasource, and Crowdflower, Together they decided to deploy a critical emergency communication system. This massive effort, crowdsourced across multiple non-profit and for-profit companies and individual volunteers from around the globe and the country.
In an interview with Envision Good TV's Katrina Hepler, web developer for Ushahidi, Brian Herbert, explained how it worked. Someone on the ground in Haiti will send a text message of their location and their needs that populates a queue that is mostly all Creole messages that we can't read because we speak English. The thousands of volunteers from 14 countries will then take the messages, translate them, add any additional notes, and categorize and geotag them. And when it goes to Ushahidi, they do a bit more in-depth research into each message and pass it on to the Coast Guard or Southern Command, and they do the emergency response. The power of crowdsourcing is that it can respond to diversity. Robert Monroe, translation volunteer coordinator at Frontline SMS, explained that they were looking at ways to automate the processing of messages. But this is not easy when you get a lot of variation, as you do in Creole, between spellings. So we had to make the decision, he said, whether to crowdsource or to automate. Leila Jana, founder of Samasource, adds that this whole project is not just an example of the power of crowdsourcing to be manifested in new ways like disaster response, but also the power of social media and the new technology we have. Between Skype and Twitter and Google Documents, we've been able to collaborate with people that I've never met in person, and that would never have been possible even just a couple of years ago. Smart versus dumb growth. All of these examples of growing, scalable responses to sustainability and responsibility crises are unknowingly questioning, if not entirely undermining, the centuries-old rallying cry for a steady-state economy, put forward by a long line of philosophers and economists, people like John Stuart Mill, John Maynard Keynes, Robert Solow, Nikolai Georgescu Rogan, and Herman Daly. The steady state or zero growth proposition begins with the presumption that growth is bad. It draws on a wealth of evidence, which on the face of it is rather convincing. Clearly, economic growth has scaled up our negative impacts, from resource depletion and environmental destruction to community disintegration and cultural imperialism. Furthermore, the much-touted benefits of growth have not been equitably distributed between countries or even within countries, nor has wealth trickled down, as promised by the neoclassical economists. Besides this, many of the benefits of growth are mere phantoms. For example, happiness in the US has remained fairly constant over the past 50 years, despite continuous economic growth and huge increases in personal disposable income. The Index for Sustainable Economic Welfare, designed by former World Bank economist Herman Daly, reaches similar conclusions. While GDP has gone up since the 1950s in the US, the UK and many other countries where the study has been replicated, quality of life, as measured by the Index for Sustainable Economic Welfare, which subtracts negative externalities like the cost of disease, war and pollution from GDP, has either leveled off or declined since the 1970s. Today, the genuine progress indicator continues to refine, test and largely confirm the Index for Sustainable Economic Welfare hypothesis. 
There comes a point, Daly explained to me in 2008, where the benefits of expansion of the economy, which are real, may be outweighed by the cost inflicted on the rest of the system by the expanded economy. This results in what Daly famously called uneconomic growth, of which there are five variations. First, jobless growth, where the economy grows but does not expand opportunities for employment. Second, ruthless growth, where the proceeds of economic growth mostly benefit the rich. Third, voiceless growth, where economic growth is not accompanied by extension of democracy or empowerment. Fourth, rootless growth, where economic growth squashes people's cultural identity. And five, futureless growth, where the present generation squanders resources needed by future generations. The consequent call for zero growth was especially strong following the emergence of the ecological economics and new economics movements in the 1980s and 1990s. But more and more, this approach is being questioned. Jonathan Porritt confesses that, despite having co-founded the Green Party in the UK in the 1970s, he's had reservations about the anti-growth thinking for a long time. There are two reasons for this, which Porritt explained to me as follows. I'm endlessly referring to the importance of massive growth in solar technology, massive growth in sustainable and organic agricultural systems, massive growth in better waste management practices. So a lot of the upbeat side of the sustainability agenda these days is actually growthist. If we don't get these huge transformations in these different sectors of the economy, which entails the creation of enormous amounts of new economic value, we're not going to get to the point we need to get to. The second reason for Porritt's scepticism is that the concept of zero growth seems to imply a static, no-progress view of human nature and humankind. He put it this way, it sort of implies that sustainability is a fixed point, and once you've got there, you can relax. And that seems to me such a fallacious concept of human nature and what it is that makes humanity so special that it doesn't have any psychological authority. If growth means getting to a point and then nothing, moving or changing dynamically, then I've got no real interest in it. In his book, Capitalism as if the World Matters, Porritt proposes that we change the debate from being about unlimited versus zero growth to being about smart versus dumb growth. Dumb growth is virtually everything we've been doing for the past century. Smart growth is something more difficult, but still, Porritt believes, ultimately possible. He explained it as follows. If you can do the decoupling of economic growth and the environmental footprint and the recoupling on the social outcomes, the improvement in well-being, then you can theoretically see how you'd get to a point where growth makes sense. Of course, it has to be so different from what we have now that some people would say, that's not really growth as we know it. That's a completely different measure of progress. Well, yes, that's precisely the point. It has to be a completely different measure of progress. The era of leading big on CSR dawns. One of the new leaders in this quest for smart growth is Unilever. CEO Paul Polman said in a 2009 interview with McKinsey, This world has tremendous challenges. 
the challenges of poverty, of water, of global warming, climate change. And businesses like ours have a role to play in that. And frankly, to me, that's very appealing. He went on to say, we have every day in our business about 2 billion customers that use our brands. And so there's a tremendous opportunity. And if we do the right thing, we can actually make major progress in society. This drive to make a major difference seems, if anything, to have got bigger over the past year. At least that's the impression you get from Unilever's new Sustainable Living Plan, which it launched recently. In it, they committed to double the size of the company while halving the environmental footprint of their products, as well as sourcing 100% of their agricultural ingredients sustainably by 2015 and helping a billion people out of poverty. Commitments like that are what Sandy Ogg, Chief HR Officer for Unilever, calls leading big. Speaking to Polly Curtis, Director of the Cambridge Programme for Sustainability Leadership, he said, There's so much going on in the world now that if you don't have amplification and time compression, then it doesn't rumble. So I call that leading big. You can't let it drool or dribble out into an organization like ours and expect to have any impact. The fact of the matter is that without leading big on sustainability and responsibility, CSR efforts no longer have any real credibility. Leading big is absolutely essential if we are to break the pattern of dumb growth and CSR ineffectiveness. I mentioned before that the dual acid test of CSR 2.0 is admission and ambition. Companies have to show their willingness to set bold, audacious targets that will reverse the negative social and environmental trends. In today's world of low trust and information overload, only bold leadership on CSR will inspire action and build credibility. Unilever and others are pointing the way and deserve our congratulations and support. They also require our unrelenting scrutiny to ensure that leading big is not simply talking big, but rather acting big, making real change happen at scale and at pace.